Meatloaf. Hot dogs. Uh, spam. Luncheon meat. All right, everybody, you are listening to the Major Spoilers Podcast. You're not listening to the uh, things you want to avoid in the lunch line. The Major Spoilers Podcast covers news, reviews, and, of course, spoilers, and goes into details about the topics discussed. So if you haven't read, listened, or watched the items we talk about, you might want to come back later. I am Stephen, that is Matthew, and we are here to talk to you about... Some pop culture goodness, namely two things Ooh. in this week's episode. We want to talk about the Sherlock Holmes movie, which came out over, what was it, Christmas, New Year's, something like that. Wow. And then we are also going to talk about the final three episodes of Doctor Who. So, Matthew, I am surprised. I am very, yes. very surprised that you took the time to actually go see a movie because you don't have a lot of free time. You're kind of like me. We don't have a lot of free time to go to movies. And yet, over the holiday break, we both went to see Sherlock Holmes. Thereupon hangs a tale. The year was 1999. Uh I had just moved to Topeka from a small town hellhole called Hayes. (laughs) More like medium-sized hellhole. My friend Eric, you remember Eric? Yes. Decided that we were going to do a murder mystery for New Year's Eve. Uh Uh-huh. And the next morning, we was going to go see a movie, and I think it was The Matrix or some such. I don't remember. But every year since, except for years when we don't want to, (laughs) we have gone to see a movie on New Year's Day. Ah, okay. And uh, had a murder mystery. This year, I was not the killer, which uh, probably a good plan. (laughs) But... uh, (laughs) In any case, yeah, we did go to see Sherlock Holmes, or as my friend Carl called it, Brokeback London. Yeah, there's some odd, there's some, but there's always been that weird there's, relationship right between Sherlock real, Holmes and Watson. Well, I mean, they they for the longest time they had lived together. They were very chummy with one another. I mean, there's some of that. Going, Watson was married like well, and what, see five times. That's that's the thing that I had to take a moment and after the movie come home and do some research because I had read. Um, uh, Scandal in Bohemia many times, and I'd heard the radio play, and I, I knew in and I out love all about probably my favorite Queen song. <laughs> I knew all about um, uh, the woman character. What's uh, now? I forgot her name. Um, Irene Adler. I, Irene Adler, and I knew that she showed up in Sherlock Holmes' life. Uh, and then, of course, there is Moriarty that shows up in the movie at the end as the shadowy figure, so that we have a sequel to uh, go back to. Inspector Lestrade um, was in there. Yeah, they were all in there, but I had to go back and do some research. Irene Adler, Scandal in Bohemia, actually appeared before um, before Moriarty did. So this yeah. this story, this movie, kind of takes place after Scandal in Bohemia, but before the point where Watson gets married. And, and so that's the big issue in this movie is uh, Watson is moving out, and Sherlock Holmes is all pissy about it, and... Uh, in the meantime, there is some big scandal brewing, which is always good when the when the crown is threatened in a movie. Well, he got married in one of the tales. Yeah, so, I mean, this is kind of almost a, it's not a prequel movie. It doesn't talk about how Sherlock Holmes and Watson got together, um, yeah. but it, it is definitely a story that takes place within, in between books somewhere. And I, well, I, haven't nailed, I haven't nailed it down exactly where it could occur in the timeline, but 
but it does fit within the universe as far as the characters go and how they're introduced to the Sherlock Holmes mythos in the movie. Maybe. I, 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 I'm not entirely sure about its canonicity and frankly, it doesn't matter. No, it really doesn't. But I mean, for canonicity isn't what's going to make people watch the movie. No, 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 no. But I mean, for those people who are Sherlock Holmes fans, they're probably going to question that at some point. Hey, wait a minute. Irene Adler didn't show up until this point in the story and here this is going on. And, you know, so there is that part, part in there, but, uh, you know, Watson is getting married, and that does upset Holmes, but as I said, in the meantime, something is threatening the crown, and it's the Illuminati. No! I love Illuminati stories. I like the fact that Watson is not a bumbling second banana here, as yes. he often seems to be in the yes. movies. Did you did you like all the characterizations? Let's start with Watson. As you said, you like him. Here he's a... Um, he can, he can, Watson he can, was probably the best for me in that... Um, uh, now, granted, I am kind of uh, uh, one of those guys who'll be like, "Yes, I can tell you this." And not to sound like Henry Higgins, Watson was my favorite in that Watson had the most realistic and consistent English accent. Right. Robert Downey Jr.'s accent did have a tendency to drift somewhat. Yeah. Whereas Jude Law actually friggin' English. <laughs> Go figure. I so like Watson that he was, was a tough as nails strongest. person. I like that he was a tough as nails person that could fight alongside and yeah. had. You know, he's a doctor, so he had enough deductive reasoning to kind of help put pieces together in the story as well. Well, and even in the old stories, you know, Watson and his service revolver, Mm -hmm. Watson was a man of action. Watson was in the war. He was capable in and of himself. And I Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. Okay. What about uh, Irene Adler? Had she been in this movie, (laughs) I would I would have an opinion, but. The character who showed to me was just kind of a, I don't know, maybe it's just me. I, I had problems with believing Rachel McAdams as the world's greatest jewel thief, as being an intellectual match for Robert Downey Jr., right. much less intellectual, an intellectual match for Sherlock right. Holmes. Right. I understood her, her prettiness, and I understood, you know, but Irene Adler doesn't strike me as the type who would be so easily manipulated. Well, and that's what I thought, too. I mean, she is a very smart person who outwitted Sherlock Holmes in Scandal in Bohemia. Uh, yep. And so I don't really see her falling to the to Moriarty's schemes. I really don't. She was always, at least in anything that I've read with, she was always kind of an equal, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a peer, if you will. Right. And <laughs> doesn't, doesn't don't get me wrong. Her. I mean, she was pretty as heck. Oh yeah. 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 And she did what she needed to do in this movie. And Rachel McAdams is so beautiful. I mean, <laughs> Rachel McAdams is the kind of girl you'd walk half a mile to drink her bath water. It's right, not like right. she wasn't attractive. It's just that I don't know. It was, when you when you look at Holmes and the way Holmes look at the world, Irene Adler is designed to be Holmes's ultimate lady. Mm-hmm. Basically, the the only woman that I think we ever see Holmes evince any interest in. Oh and yeah, for her to be kind of milk toasty, and for her to be knocked out during the the you know the climactic fight sequence mm-hmm. didn't really say much to what. Uh, to you know the filmmakers knowing what i believe to be the center of that character so right, you got that right, going right inspector lestrade uh i thought the 
part was played pretty much like Inspector Lestrade has been played out, although the swerve in the middle of the movie where Holmes is captured and taken before Lord Blackwood really had me because I was like, there is no way that Lestrade would ever turn on Sherlock Holmes. And then we find out, ah, Sherlock Holmes pulled one over on the audience. And so I was a little bit more comfortable with that. But for a moment there, I was very upset with how Guy Ritchie and the writers were swerving the Lestrade character at that point. I Uh, like the way they, they, you know, they portrayed Lestrade as having kind of an adversarial relationship with Holmes. Right. The line that sticks in my head is uh, Lestrade says Holmes would make a good criminal. He's like, yes, and I think you might make a good policeman someday. (laughs) Exactly. So let's talk about Robert Downey Jr. and the Sherlock Holmes character. All right. Uh, Like it, not like it. I was okay with it. I mean, I really didn't mind it. I mean, to me, this doesn't, and I love Guy Ritchie a lot, but this movie does not scream sequel to it. It seems like a, here's a nice pretty movie that has some action and it's a mystery set in, in Victorian England, but it was not to me a Sherlock Holmes movie. And I don't mm. know why. It's not because it's not Basil Rathbone. It's not because Holmes didn't have a funky pipe and a, and a, and a cap and a, and a cape. A deer stalker cap. Right. It no, wasn't, it wasn't I any of that. It's... it's just that this was a different character than any kind of Sherlock Holmes that we've seen before. We've read in the books and we've heard stories about- well, what was it? It was the best episode of House ever. <laughs> Seriously, it yeah. took Holmes and it twisted him further to be more like the character that most people recognize. And mm-hmm. I don't have a problem with Downey Jr. as the central character of that film. I don't have a problem with Downey Jr. as a shirtless, bare knuckle fist fighter who is so brilliant that he Amadeus chose it through the world. Well, and, and that's- by the way. That if they'd have done that two or three more times in the movie, that would have been a wonderful thing. Oh, you like that I part? I love the bits was... where he starts, where he thinks through it and he thinks through it. But I was waiting for them to do it after it was introduced and have it, you know, come up and be important to the plot, or more importantly, to have it not go exactly the way. That's that he... what I was hoping for uh, when he was fighting the big Russian guy or whoever yeah. he was, the Italian guy. I was really hoping that he would have played through that and then it gone horribly wrong for him. See, that was the one place where I knew it wouldn't. Mm-hmm. And because that was, that was the badass moment. Right. And that worked for me because that was the point where, you know, it, the line that sold it was ability to spit it back of head neutralized. Mm-hmm. That's the moment where it definitely would work. Whereas if it had happened during the explosion sequence, when they were running and, you know, getting oh, blowed yeah, yeah. up. Yeah. Yeah. That would have been great there for it to have him do it and then be wrong mm-hmm. when he turned around with Irene and then the bomb knocked them both back. Right. What do you think of Sherlock Holmes as a bare knuckle fighter? I don't hate that actually. I, I, my personal Holmes is more wasted from his heroin addiction than right, that. Right. Older than that, considerably older than that. Right. And more of the, the kind of, you know, the kind of person who would issue fighting, not because he wasn't good at it, but because it was below him. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that wouldn't necessarily sell tickets to a movie either, necessarily. If Watson was doing all the work. True. If Watson was doing all the fighting. True. Why wouldn't it just be a movie about Watson? And that's that's kind of the point. This has all the names and the trappings of Sherlock Holmes without actually 
being a Sherlock Holmes that's, story. That's what I was trying to get at earlier. It was a great movie and a great story, but it to me wasn't Sherlock Holmes. I did find it interesting though about the bare knuckle bare knuckle fighting was that he was doing it not only for I guess his own you know Batman esque fight, fighting style kind of stuff, but also right. because he was doing it to get the uh, money back that. Jude Law, uh, Dr. Watson had bet. Uh, we find out that Watson has a big gambling problem. And I thought that was kind of a little nudge that showed that these two were very good friends and knew each other inside and out. Yeah, my friend Carl said that the movie would have been better if they actually got the chance to kiss. <laughs> what did you think of it the overall story? It was definitely romantic. Yeah, there were yeah, romantic. It's a, it's a bro film. It's a, what is it, a bromance film. It certainly is mm-hmm. that. What did you think of this whole Lord Blackwood, Illuminati, let's bring down the crown and take over the world storyline? Um, I didn't really think about it. All right. So in it, Lord liked... Blackwood, Lord Blackwood is revealed to be a criminal mastermind. And so he's hung, but he comes really? back to life and everybody is is afeard of this oh, guy. Oh, no, he's coming back to life. What are we going to do? And... Uh, they think it's going to look bad on the police department. It certainly has the supernatural aspect to it. And there seems to be a cult following him. And, and uh, Blackwood does all this mumbo jumbo and is going to kill everyone in parliament at the stroke of 12. If they don't uh, some come to his needs. And of course what he's actually using is not magic, which in Victorian England. And that's what I guess I like about the past up until about 1940, 45, I would have liked to have lived in the past because magic was still this kind of, whispered thing that if you knew enough scientific knowledge you could get the rubes to believe that you were this you know this dark lord and that's what blackwood is doing here by using scientific principles he essentially is going to uh, snuff everyone out with cyanide except for his followers who he has secretly given an antidote to i'm not sure if that's scientifically sound or not in real life uh, I'm not sure the scientific soundness of creating a remote control using <laughs> in Victorian England you know, ni- 1894 technology. It was steampunky. Yeah, it was. And of course, we find out later at the end that that's what Moriarty was after—not the gas, but the uh, remote control. But the remote control. You know the thing that most threw me out of it. What's that? And this will tell you the kind of person that I am. Mm-hmm. There's a moment where he says something about his brother Mycroft having a home in the country. Yes. Mycroft is a noted recluse who goes back and forth from his rooms mm-hmm. to his club where he eats mm-hmm. and back to his rooms mm-hmm. and only occasionally speaks to anyone and that usually to solve a problem that's too big even for Sherlock. Right. So Mycroft, for Mycroft Holmes to have this home in the country, my brain was like, I, no, I don't, I, 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 I'm not sure I'm buying that. It just seemed like a moment where they're like, you know what we need to do? We need to we need to stick in a reference to uh, Sherlock Holmes having a smarter, fatter brother. Right, and I was waiting for a more uh, for a uh, Mycroft moment in the movie, and then we got that. So I was like, okay, well, there's your Mycroft moment. That's enough. And I, uh, I would have liked I to have loved, seen an appearance by that, but that's it would have been know. interesting. Yeah. So overall, we'll probably this is see a, that in the next movie if they make it. I'm sure. What did you think of Guy? I mean, I love Guy Ritchie as a director. I love his. His eye for shooting. I, I've loved him ever since Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels and Snatch and, and everything Whoosh. else that he's done. A lot Whoosh. of Guy Ritchie is in this in this movie. Whoosh. What'd you think it of the It opens with a shot of cobblestone streets. Mm-hmm. And then immediately, whoosh, to right. a, another cobblestone street. And then, whoosh, 
his camera whooshes everywhere. Yeah, they have a, a high-speed chase involving buggies, for God's sake. Yeah. Take a moment, <laughs> calm down. Um, I liked the effects that he used to show us how Sherlock Holmes did his tricks. Right. And I liked, I liked the visual effects he used during the whole sequence where Holmes is like, punch to the neck. Right. Punch to the throat. Right. Dislocate jaw. Mm-hmm. Break third rib. I love that effect. But, um, overall, my, my understanding of the film is this. Whoosh. <laughs> Have you seen other Guy Ritchie movies? Uh, I don't know. What else did Guy Ritchie do? Well, he's, he's most notable for, uh, Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels and Snatch. Is that he the one run... with the juggernaut? Yes. Snatches. Okay. Snatches. I think I saw Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels. He's actually in both. He's actually in both. Ju- yeah. In Lock, okay. Stock and Two Smoking Barrels, it's all about, uh, this gun whoosh. heist that goes wrong. And, and they these, go whoosh. And these, these schlubs get caught up in a gambling thing. And it's, it's very good film. Uh, I liked, I liked how Guy Ritchie directed it. You could very easily tell it was a Guy Ritchie film. I, I forgot that he had directed this film and I was sitting there watching it. And uh, then the smoke alarm went off in the movie theater. Dumbasses burning popcorn. And so I missed the opening credit where it was listing everyone. But as I was watching, I was like, wow, this was very Guy Ritchie-esque. And then, of course, when the credits come up, I was like, aha, because it's a Guy Ritchie film. Uh, I think for Holmes, I think it's an enjoyable movie. Uh, I wouldn't put it among my most highest rated films of all time. I certainly won't be buying this on Blu-ray, but it's an enjoyable film to sit down and watch once. Because after you know everything, there's no point going back and watching it again. Yeah, it it was good. Um, I think Kevin Murphy um, said it best. Kevin Murphy, of course, best known for uh, playing Tom Servo. Right. But Kevin Murphy wrote a book called A Year at the Movies, and he mm-hmm. talked about halfway through about his love of what he liked to call big, dumb, chop movies. Mm-hmm. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is a big, dumb, chop movie. This doesn't have as much as the chop but it's basically, you know, a, a big, fairly plain entertainment. It's got whoosh, and it's got punchy-punchy and fighty-fighty and a little of the stabby-stabby. It's got some cute moments, and it's got, you know, Lestrade looking like Bob the Goon from Batman in 1989. Yeah. You know, it's it's enjoyable. It's a it's a good little movie. It's not going to change my understanding of Sherlock Holmes any. No, and this certainly isn't going to you know, this isn't going to override you know the final problem. It's not going to override uh, the adventures at, Re- at Reichenbach Falls and mm-hmm. the the is it the adventure of the empty house where he and Moriarty go over the falls? I don't remember now. Yeah, it's something like that. I'm, I'm not Alan Moore. I don't memorize this stuff. <laughs> you know, it, it's it's not great. It, it's right up there with the Marvel Comics adaptation of Hound of the Baskervilles for me. Okay. It's an interesting take that I don't necessarily consider to be perfect, but, you know, hey, it, I, I spent eight bucks, and I got about eight bucks worth of entertainment. Well, then that's all you can ask for then. All right, everybody, stay tuned. We've got some Who coming up just around the corner. Oh, yes, you can tell by that song that we are about to talk about Doctor Who. Specifically, not the 12 Doctors or the 10 Doctors or the 57 Doctors that we've talked about. First of all, there are not 12 Doctors unless you're (laughs) counting wrong. You could take into account that there are now 11 Doctors. And, of course, there was the alternate ninth Doctor from Scream of the Schalke. And technically, there was uh, Rowan Atkinson, I believe, as the Doctor in The Curse of Fatal Death. Well, see, there you go, 12. 
Uh, we yes. are, of course, talking about the last three episodes of of David Tennant's reign as yes. the uh, the Tenth Doctor. Specifically, yes. we're looking at the Waters of Mars and then End of Time Parts 1 and 2. And let's start with yeah. Waters of Mars. We haven't seen the Doctor in an episode for some time at uh, almost a year, I think, from from American TV standards. Mm-hmm. And we get this story about the Doctor showing up on Mars. Planet of the Dead was last spring. Oh, was it? Okay. Well, it's been a while. It's been a while since we've seen some Doctor By the way, I'm I'm English because it's a Doctor Who. Oh, whatever. So was Sherlock Holmes and you you didn't use the the funky accent then. Well, no, no, no. Sherlock Holmes. Hello, Mary Poppins. So anyway. uh, Robert Downey Jr. is just about as English (laughs) as Benjamin Grimm. So anyway. it is the doctor finds himself on Mars on a very specific date, the date the first Mars colony blows up. And when he finds out who the people are and he finds out what date it is, his main goal is to get the hell off that planet and get away because he sees this as a fixed point in time that cannot change. Nobody knows what happened to that Mars base until now. And we find out that there is some something in the water supply, bacterial or something, uh, that has infected the crew and turned them into these water-spewing monsters who only want to get to the planet Earth so that they can essentially take over the planet. Right. And it gets very spooky after that. I mean, what did you think of the uh, the monsters, the bad guys in this in this episode? I love the makeup they were effect. Suitably creepy. I liked the. I won't say subtlety, but I liked the way they built their, you know, their mystique a little bit. You saw the first one and then he turned for a brief second and then the next one. And then the girl in isolation slowly transforms. Right. It's very much a, a zombie motif, yeah, it but it's done in a way that you don't see a lot. Right. And the, the water spewing from the mouth thing is very creepy and very inhuman. Right. Without being overtly, you know, Gory or Herschel Gordon Lewis. So Mm -hmm. I really like that. I thought there was a lot of humor in the episode, especially when they're running from module to module and the doctor's like, you know, you guys could just bring some bicycles along so we don't have to do all this running. Um, I found the doctor's humor to feel, I think intentionally, a little forced. Maybe because he was trying to lighten the situation of which which they occurred. It felt like he was trying to be his normal self, but he couldn't pull it off. And finally, the stuff happened. Well, he has to explain to the captain that everybody dies and everybody has to die here because if everyone doesn't die, then the captain's granddaughter will never find the courage to travel among the stars and get humans off of earth and out into space to take their proper place among, among the universe or in the universe or whatever. Um, and he's real trouble with that. You know, the, the captain is like, I can't believe you're doing this. And he's like, no, I'm sorry. I, I can't. And then as he's leaving, he realizes, and this is the part that I find I found really spooky as far as coming from the Doctor. And we may have seen other incarnations of this, maybe especially in Doctors 1, 2, and 3, where the Doctor essentially says, hey, wait a minute, I am the Time Lord, I am the last frickin' Time Lord, and I can do whatever I want. Time is not fixed. Time will bend to my will. And he kind of goes into mad scientist mode for a moment. He starts acting like the master. Yeah, to a point. And and for me, when I watched that the first time, I was like, whoa, that is that is really and trippy. And it's very bothersome. Yeah, but it's interesting to see that Tennant did wonderful things with his crazies. Mm-hmm. 
because there, I mean, there's some serious crazies going on here, but he doesn't, you know, he doesn't flip out into full flung Edna Garrett chewing the scenery mode necessarily. He's, you know, he's crazy in a way that is understandable and relatable. And, you know, given what he's been through, you know, even when he was the, the, the bald guy in the, the, uh, submarine captain's uniform, all the things that he's been through since the time war mm-hmm. have just kind of piled up and flips the hell out. And it's really shocking. He has no real companion. No, he doesn't. He has no real reference point. This is one of the points where he feels at his most alien and his most, you know, disturbing. And it's interesting to see that, that fine line between what the doctor does and what the master does. Mm -hmm. And to see the doctor Trump right over that line. Well, when he's screaming, I am the time Lord victorious to me, that was just like, the most chilling moment of the whole episode. It wasn't, it wasn't these monsters spitting water at you in this creepy, don't get infected <laughs> moment. It is, I am the time Lord victorious and you shall bow to my will. And then the knocks on the door and he freaks out for a moment. Yeah. The knock is what really sells it for me. And now that, when you get to the end of it though, mm-hmm. when, you know, he finally does standing amidst the chaos and the flames and the countdown to death, and he finally just says, I can do anything. And you get to that little countdown moment mm-hmm. and it, you kind of hear the TARDIS and you kind of don't. Right. And then he, you know, he does what he does that changes the timeline. Right. Just, Essentially. Wow. And, you know, this is four weeks old, a month old, something like that. It came out Thanksgiving. Um, well, we don't want to spoil it for people who haven't been spoilered. Too bad. Uh, the right. doctor changes the timeline. He rescues the captain, the hot Asian chick, and this other guy, and yep. uh, takes them back to Earth. And he says, "Look, um, you can tell the story to your daughter and still inspire her. I, you know, I'm the Time Lord." And and the captain really has this realization that, you know, she needs to die. There are certain parts of this story of time that is fixed. Doesn't matter yep. about the location. The captain has to die if the daughter is or the granddaughter is to become you know, this pioneer and she goes into the house and kills herself. And it was to me a shocking moment. I thought that she was going to pull out a gun and try to shoot the doctor for being a dick. And she ends up killing herself. And the time, the time stream is correct. And I mean, everything still plays out the way it's supposed to play out. Just, you know, the things have been nudged a little bit. And that, you know, that realization that the doctor has freaks him out even more. He's like, Hey, I, you know, I can't control time the way I think I can control time. If things mm-hmm. are fixed, they are fixed. And the lone time Lord, no matter how much of his power he has, isn't going to change a thing. Uh, Rico says the waters of Mars was superb. Loved how all was slowly going to hell. Uh, and the captain knew she had to die for humanity to prosper and was willing to do it. But the doctor just had to try and change history for a moment. He seemed more like the master than the doctor. Um, and yeah, I would agree with you. Now, as far as these final three stories go, these final three episodes go, this one's my favorite of the three. This is actually my least favorite of the really? three. What did you not like about about this? Oh, I didn't not like any of it. It felt very much like a classic second doctor trapped on a base story. Right. Right down to the references to the Ice Warriors. Right, right. Yeah, You know, it's... It takes the series and it puts it in a familiar context. 
And, you know, it, it takes it and it puts the tenth doctor in a second doctor story and then has him go, woohoo. So it's not that it's bad. It's just not, not my favorite of the three. And it has that moment at the end where the cloister bell sounds in mm-hmm. the TARDIS. And if you've ever heard the cloister bell in the TARDIS, you know that the cloister bell is a bad, bad thing. Right, right. And I love the ending where he's just, he's just running off into time. La-dee-da-dee-doo, this is me running off into time. Because if you remember, the cloister bell doesn't ring very often. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it rings when bad things happen. It rang right before, um, his fifth doctor self crashed into him and he almost died. Mm-hmm. You know, and it rang in, what, Castro Valva like 20 odd years well, ago. So, yeah, but they've been playing up this idea that the doctor was going to die, this four knocks yeah. thing for, what, over a year now? He will knock four times. That was when the face of, uh, what's his name, Bo? The face of Bo didn't give him that. Planet of the Dead oh, was well, kind of right. the Okay. Planet of the Dead aired here in like what April, May, something I don't know. Oh, okay. I thought that the I thought the face at Bo had given him the the thing about the four knocks. No, that came from the psychic girl in the bus. Ah, uh, okay. Oh, that's right. You will knock that's four right. times. The face of Bo told him you are not alone, which right, led to, right, the, to the master the discovery and, mm-hmm. that Professor Yano was the master. Yusagi Zero says I must be Usagi. one of the. Usagi Zero says, I must be Usagi. one of the only people who hated Waters of Mars. It was so contrived, and no one behaved naturally. Uh, stranger comes to base, they hold him prisoner, and then things go to hell, but they all believe everything he says to the point of killing themselves because of the stupidest reason ever. So it had to happen so humans would go to the stars because her descendant would be inspired. No one else would, let's see, no one else would do that ever. But her mysteriously getting back to Earth did the same thing as long as she died. Stupid. It would have been much easier and more dramatic if it had been something else that made sense. Don't get me started on the stupid standing around doing nothing, the huge hallways that needed to be brought up to Mars, so why not smaller, shorter ones? Oh yeah, running scenes, and then the two of them took off after getting back to Earth, so yeah, only she needed to die. He could have taken everyone else to safety. Blah. Stupid, stupid, stupid. The one part that I hated about uh, Waters of Mars was that damn robot. <laughs> gadget, That's the thing, gadget. gadget, gadget. That's the one thing that I hated about that entire episode. Everything else, you know, come on. Uh, a stranger shows up and everyone believes him. Uh, go back and look at the last 40 years of Doctor Who or 20 years or however many it is because gadget, Doctor gadget. Who shows up at these stations and everyone believes him. And uh, No, they, he always gets taken into custody. Well, at some point, but then they he always believe always him and, and saves and, the you day. Know, for a while, it became a running gag. Show up, get arrested. Yeah. The doctor, where the fourth doctor was like, I suppose you want to arrest me now. The doctor realizes he has done something terribly wrong, and that kicks us into the end of time, where the Ood comes to him in a vision, and he decides to go visit uh, the planet and see what's going on, and they explain to him that the end of time is coming. Break Let's it down for moment. us. Break it down for us, Matthew. At the beginning of... The end of time, part one. Dun, 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 dun. He steps out of the TARDIS and makes reference to how long it's been and how he's done so many things. Right, right. Even got married for a while. Yep. There's no real explanation of how long the lacuna between waters of Mars and end of time is. But he shows up on the Ood sphere. Yep. And he talks to Ood Sigma, 
who is someone who's he's known since the Rose days. Mm -hmm. And the Ood are telling him something evil. Oh, something. Blah, 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 blah. Dun, 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 dun. Dun, 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 dun. They Yes. Dun, 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 dun. He is returning. Who is something. he? He is returning. Oh, my gosh. He's the master. Who else would it be? All right. So let's break down this return of the master. The last okay. time we saw the master was when uh, he was uh, Prime Minister Saxon. And yes. he took over the uh, the planet with, and I forget what those were. Were those Daleks? Were those Time Lord spheres? What were those things? Those were. He used some. He used some something. word. He, he used some Elves. name that the Doctor knew right away was a was fake. But essentially, yeah, it was a fairy tale. Essentially, the Master was quote unquote killed, and his wife, who knew what was the going Master, on refused along, to regenerate. Right, that was it. Um. Uh, but the wife knew what was going on, so she was taken into custody and put into prison, even though the mm -hmm. timeline was reset and no one knew what went on during those many years that Martha Jones was wandering the planet. Uh, but she's in prison, and there's a cult of Saxon who attempt to resurrect him. Mm -hmm. Works? Doesn't work? I thought that was a little odd that, you know, they're not really explaining things other than let's throw some potions together. It gets interrupted. Uh, the master is alive, but not quite right. But his, his wife intentionally, I think tried to, to uh, sabotage the process. Yeah, she did, but it just didn't make sense of how all of a sudden is there a cult of Saxon and they've got these tomes that talk about how to resurrect him when there's really no possible way for these to exist. That was the one weird bit of the whole return of, of the master that bothered me. Uh, you know. Well, that and he came back half formed, and he had to eat everything. Right. Well, well and, and that was and, and that part where he used the giant machine to turn everybody on Earth to make him look like him. Okay, that was funny. <laughs> that was funny. The best part of part one, I think, is Wilf becoming an official companion. Yeah, for a short time. It's, Wilf has shown up, what, five, six times? Every time Wilf we have to see Dr. Up. Donna at her home, we see Wilf. Wilf showed up before Donna. Yeah, yeah he did. He actually showed up in that uh, Starship Titanic episode. Mm-hmm. And Donna didn't show up until later. So right. it's interesting that, you know, Wilf keeps popping up, and later on they mention this, but Wilf finally becomes an official, you know, companion. And officially hangs out with the doctor. And, of course, the master goes... The dual heartbeat of the Time Lord, which... And Now, tell me if I'm wrong. You're jumping ahead of yourself. Okay, go ahead. You are in the second episode. No, no, no. I was going to ask you a question. Tell me, does the dual heartbeat of the Time Lord, this drumming... that Again, we've seen since the Prime Minister Saxon episode. Is that not the beat... Of the Doctor Who theme song, because it goes da 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 dun da 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 dun da 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 dun You can kind of see that, yeah. And so I kind of picked up on that. I was like, "Whoa, that kind of brings the whole meta thing together." Um, and Wilf is is visited by the spirit, somebody dressed in white, who is giving him cryptic clues. And and I want to talk about more about her. After we get okay. to the to the second episode part, but she's dropping cryptic clues saying you must help yes. the doctor. You're an old soldier. It's time to pick up arms. All of these things, and and before he knows it, she disappears. 
And meanwhile, the doctor and, and Wilf, um, wind up at some, again, some mysterious Colt's house who are trying to activate a giant machine. Mm -hmm. Turns out it's a piece of alien technology that's supposed to heal the planet. Uh, and I, I must've missed a line or something that these two aliens are explaining to the doctor about, but supposedly Mm -hmm. it re, I don't know. It regenerates the DNA or transforms the DNA into whatever's there in the device. So the master steps in and everyone on the planet turns into the master. Right. There, there's some weird thing going on. Apparently there's a super billionaire who wants to create this mystical device that will allow everyone on the planet to be healed of every possible thing. Actually, I think he wanted to do it just so his daughter could live forever. Right. That was his idea. But, But what it actually ended up doing was, resetting everything they were i think they were trying to use the master's regeneration or something to help his daughter to live forever right but what it ended up doing was actually creating six billion copies of the master (laughs) right except for except for dr donna who presumably because she has the doctor's powers within her or she's half time lord or whatever right and wilf which didn't make sense because he wasn't in the booth was he when when the power went off, when, when the doctor's power so. went off. So I didn't understand why he was not af- affected. He was in a, an isolation chamber. Was, was he, he in the isolation chamber? Cause I thought it was the doctor that was in the isolation chamber at the time, but maybe no. Not. Okay. So maybe that's why he wasn't affected because of the leaded glass or whatever that they, that they use. Yeah. So I, uh, okay. I'll go ahead and buy that. But I thought that was odd when I was watching part two is like, how come he didn't change? What's up with that? Yeah. And, and then, uh, of course, part one ends with the big dun 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 Yeah. We see the tapping of the of the finger and this crazy old woman talking about some... Well, throughout the episode, we've been hearing narration from this mysterious voice. Right. It sounds a lot like Tony Stark for some reason. <laughs> but even better, at the end of the episode, we finally get the answer. Right. James Bond is a Gallifreyan. <gasps> Because Timothy Dalton is playing the Lord President of Gallifrey, obviously the the fifth James Bond. Uh, he hadn't yet reincarnated, <laughs> Re- regenerated, in James Bond into, yet into Pierce Brosnan. Okay, so uh, Pierce Brosnan is, or I'm sorry, uh, Timothy, Timothy Dalton, Dalton is. Uh, uh, pres- don't say the name. Okay, but he's the president of Gallifrey. Okay, because I, I do want to talk about this because it does spell out at the, in the in episode but it two. Is. So, all right. What did you think of the doctor master interactions in this first part of the end of time? It seemed honestly, they felt a little padded to me. Yeah, I thought so too. I, I liked, I liked the realization that the doctor had that, you know, he came to the realization that the drums were not just the master being bazoinga. Right. Because he had obviously, you know, for a long time, he had basically chalked the whole thing up to the master being two turns off plumb. Mm-hmm. But I love the fact that, you know, by sharing the drums, the doctor realized what was going on. Mm-hmm. I liked the ending up to the point where we got to see John Sim in a dress. <laughs> Can you just imagine much- if two people were getting it on at the time that <laughs> they changed into the master? <laughs> 
Well, I mean, statistically <laughs> speaking, it had to happen. You know it did. Six billion people. They didn't show us that, of course. I was also a little upset, and, you know, my friend Bruce kind of uh, pointed out my problem, which we'll get to later with six billion masters. But the end, we see... The Time Lords and the Master has transformed all of humanity except for Wilf and Donna into duplicates of himself. Dun-dun-dun! Mm-hmm. I do like the appearance of the 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 Vochi, the spiky people, Oh, yeah, the they've been around people. before, right? Wasn't there a red version of one of those guys in... in Balakapalata uh, appeared in uh, the Starship Titanic episode. Okay, all right. And... Um, uh, they're different, though. He's a Zochi. Oh, okay. They're a Vochi. That's right. Because they were in Torchwood and some other episodes as well. Oh, I don't know if I've ever seen okay. them before. Okay. But uh, the Doctor manages to barely get away, thanks to the Vochi. Which, are we in episode two now? We're now in episode two. Okay, because I thought it was funny that here all this time, you know, the Doctor's tied up and the Master is doing his monologuing, and he finally rips off the... Uh, you know, the, the gag on the doctor. And he says, man, you are really not as smart as I, I gave you credit for. You didn't even realize that one of the guards is taller than everyone else is, is one inch too tall. And I, I want to point out that there is a lot of star Wars and star Trek references throughout, or I don't know if it's intentional, but seemingly spread throughout this episode too. The first one being, you know, here is a clone trooper that's taller than the rest, or aren't you a little short to be a, a stormtrooper kind of comment? And it mm-hmm. turns out to be, you know, the aliens who rescue the doctor. And I thought that was quite funny. They couldn't get him untied fast enough. Uh, and so they're carting him around in this big, big, uh, you know, dolly. And he's like, no, not the stairs, not the stairs. No, no, no. Stop untie me. Uh, I thought there were some very good moments of, of comedy there. Um, and then the fact that he didn't want to be transported off the planet Earth, I thought, was rather interesting as well. But we also get some other wacky time travel moments with the uh, president yeah. of the Time Lords. The Time Lords are still locked in the past, locked in the time bubble. Which was, where, they where were, did that happen? Tell us where that, that happened. That never actually happened. Okay, is this... On panel. Okay, is this 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 moment where the Time Lords fell and the Doctor essentially wiped out the Daleks and the Time Lords at the same time? This this has never been shown on film, but at the end of the Time War, the Doctor locked his people and the Daleks, and presumably whoever else was in the war, inside the impenetrable time bubble. Right. That's why the Gallifreyans have been, he's referred to his people as gone, his people as dead for years. Right. They're not physically dead, they're just locked outside of time, space, and dimension. Right. So So they are actually existing in the past. Well, are are they existing in the future at the end of time? That's the part that was a little confusing. Well, the future is the past for them. Okay. Okay. They're time-locked. Right. They cannot travel anywhere. They are time-locked. So this is actually taking place at the point when it took place and not the point that is taking place now. Right. But the president... Damn time travel. Damn you time travel. A freakish, brilliant move, really, in that he broadcasts a signal back in time to the moment when the master looks into the Great Divide. Right. And actually implants the signal of drums in the master's head. Mm-hmm. So that so they can that use that as a, 
as kind of when a there homing are six billion masters, they can use it as a homing device to get back out of the time. Okay, but this is the weird part. Uh, yes. The Lord President pulls the the heart of darkness off of his ring or wherever. The, the white point star, yeah. Right, which is kind of what, the source of all time travel or something? The the thing that opened up the Great Rift or something? No, it's just a white point star. It's just a Gallifreyan diamond to throws my knowledge. It, throws, it at a, throws it at a hologram and somehow that sends it through this locked barrier that they're in into the past or wherever that the master finds it. That was the one part that's like, okay, if you're locked and you can't move and you can't get out, how do you send this diamond to earth. You want to know the real answer? Whim of the writer? TRTS, my friend. Oh, great. They read the script. All right. <laughs> they knew it would work because they read the script. <laughs> that, that's another story part that kind of, that kind of flopped for me that I was like, mm, that doesn't quite work right. But it works. Supposedly. Because now that- I, be- I believe that the white point stars were designed as sort of a, an escape mechanism, it's, it's a, there was something referencing it. You remember when the doctor found out it was a white point star, he was right. like, ah, and I think the yeah, implication. Yeah, he said the Time Lords are back. Some, yeah, some dialogue implied that the white point stars were designed to get them out of the time lock. Ah, okay. All right. So this essentially opens up with this alien device that had been used earlier, allows them with the white point star diamond to open up yep. a portal between um, Gallifrey and Earth, at which point you would think that all of the Time Lords would start marching through, but it's essentially the president, uh, his mm-hmm. two aides, and two people that whose faces are covered. We don't see them yet, and we'll talk about them in a moment. In the meantime, right. uh, the white spirit lady keeps appearing to Wilf, saying, you know, he needs to take up a gun, and the Wilf is saying the doctor never uses a gun. He never kills people. But at the moment when the door's opening... The doctor realizes, you know, I'm going to have to put an end to this in some way or the S is going down. Yeah. And he jumps out of the space. Of course, they've fixed the spaceship. They're flying into the uh, Earth's atmosphere. There's still several, probably thousand feet above the building. And the doctor jumps out and plummets down right on target, right in between the master and uh, the Gallifreyans. The president, yeah. And he doesn't die. And that's the moment right there where I went, okay, he's dead. Now he's going to regenerate. But he didn't. You're and right. then we had the sequence that kind of damaged this, the everything. In, in, in Where James Bond and the kid from Life on Mars uh, basically argue back and forth across the doctor while the doctor dramatically turns and yeah, points his gun and points his, and gun. points his gun. Do I kill the, did I kill the master? Do I kill the president? At what point does very, very padded. At what point does the doctor scream out the president's name as they're uh, going not back? Until, not until the, like the very end. Okay. So the doctor finally decides, Hey, I don't have to kill anybody. Yep. Wilf. Uh, I don't have to kill anybody. Um, master step aside i'm blowing up yeah the div- I'm that's blowing the up thing the he points the gun at the master he, he cocks the weapon and then he says get out of the way yes and he blows and up the, the portal device he blows up the he blows up the portal which is nice and then he at that point he turns and yells something and he yells you won't win this time rassilon right now who is rassilon fill us in on the rassilon character who's oh. been around for 20 plus years Rassilon is a legendary Time Lord, and Rassilon was actually 
If you've ever seen The Three Doctors or The Five, the five doctors, doctors. Yeah, I've seen that one. Rassilon is the one who went and sought out immortality. In The Five Doctors, Rassilon was a stone a stone creature. He put together the whole thing where they had to run through. That's Omega, honey. Rassilon <laughs> put together the whole thing. My wife uh, is, is doing the Omega helmet uh, thing. Anyway, <laughs> Rassilon created this whole thing to lead the Time Lords to immortality. Um, Rassilon also appears in The Three Doctors, I believe, as kind of a, a crazy person. But he has always been this incredibly powerful creature of legend who was so powerful and so brilliant that he actually locked himself forever in transformed into stone. So through all of this, there is also a legend that Rassilon was resurrected by the time Lords during the time war mm-hmm. to lead the entire planet. Mm. And it was he who was the head of the high council. And it was his fault that the time Lords got locked in the battle and it's his fault. So basically, he was he was the crazy leader when the doctor was forced to to time lock them. How long has this idea of the time war been around? Since uh, the ninth doctor, the okay. time war was something. At, the eighth doctor story, for all intents and purposes, canonically ended at the end of the nineteen ninety six American Doctor Who movie. Right. When the, on the first episode, Rose. Mm-hmm. The doctor makes a reference to his people being gone. And okay. then throughout season one of the new Doctor Who, we're, we're, you know, hearing bits and pieces of the time. War. Okay. All right. So, so Rassilon's resurrection, I'm not entirely sure when and if Rassilon's resurrection was done canonically. I think it was in an audio play or something. Who knows? Okay. But at the same time that all this is going on and the doctor is essentially squashed himself and you think he's going to die. I don't know how anyone, even a time Lord could survive a drop from that feet or that height, although, you know, he did lose a hand and, and went on. Um, that's a fight. The master realizes that, Hey, all this time, my craziness has been a plot by, by Rosalind, by the time Lords. I'm just a, a, a pawn in all of this. And he gets pretty angry too. And I think I've asked this before. When did the master get super lightning force powers? There's another super lightning force powers in part one. No, he's had, has, he hasn't he had lightning force powers before in the Saxon uh, episode, or I is this the first? So. Okay, where does where does Rosalind get uh, Rassilon get his uh, Yoda powers? Rassilon's Yoda powers, I think, came from his staff. Oh, okay, because he you know he uses his hand and he disintegrates one of the council members. Oh, he had that that uh, gauntlet. The gauntlet, yeah. Thing. Yeah. Gauntlet. And so the master and Rassilon exchange lightning bolts and eventually Rass, uh, the master goes up to Rassilon and they all disappear into yeah. uh, the void together. While all this is going on, I know we're kind of jumping around in the story. Uh, Gallifrey, Gallifrey comes out of the time lock and it is going to inhabit the space that Earth inhabits. It's going and to destroy the Earth. And the doctor is pleading with the master saying, hey, man, uh, you know, not only are the Time Lords coming back, but the Daleks are coming back. And he starts rattling off all of these super ancient villains that the doctor has encountered at at points in the past, is my guess. I thought I heard one or two names that sounded familiar. And that kind of shakes the master into kind of doing the right thing uh, at the end of this episode. 
The problem is, though, by now the alien ship has landed and Wilf and the aliens are in there. The problem is, though, when they undid the Time Lord powers and the Master's powers and turned everybody back to human, uh, they forgot or somehow didn't shut down the core. Or Wilf yeah, there's, goes there's in. some sort of the master was using some sort of weird nuclear device, right? And when Will first arrives, the device has this weird two chamber thing where somebody has to lock one side of the chamber in order to unlock another. Mm-hmm. So Wilf jumps in to let a guy to save a man's life basically and let him free, and ends up locked in this isolation chamber, right? And unfortunately, the doctor realizes that the chamber is about to be basically flooded with radiation that will immediately, you know, melt Wilf. Kill Milf. Wilf, not Milf. Wilf. Yeah, Milf is a different, <laughs> different website. Okay, before we and- get to that, before we get to that, when Rassilon comes through the gate, there are yes. two people whose faces are supposed to be eternally covered from now on. These, yes. what he calls them, the angels of something, which I kind of took as a blink reference, but at first. Kind of, yeah. But then at one point, the doctor is looking at these two people that are kneeling, and I took them as being a man and a woman. Other people have said that they are two women, but the one person moves her hands down, and we realize, dun-dun-dun, it's the woman in white who has been appearing to Wilf all this time. She's older. She is an older woman. Um, And there is speculation on who this is. Yes. Four, four speculations. The, this is the one that I thought it was. I thought it was the doctor's mother and the man kneeling was his father. The two people that would dissent about going against the doctor would be his parents. That's yes. who I thought they were. There have been some other speculations that uh, one of them is, let's see. Uh, well, I know who I think they are. One of them points to Ramona. Was- Romana. Romana. That's who one people, some people thought it was. Another thought it was the doctor's granddaughter. Susan. Susan. And. Susan yeah. And who is the fourth one? I don't know. I'm trying to look for it here. There's a. Some people thought maybe it was Donna in the future. Um, No. So Based I, just, on the I just thought it was age, I just thought it was the doctor's mother. A lot of people thought that and and you know it was a strong implication but the the problems with that are that first of all we've never seen the doctor's mother or right, father. Right. Right. Um we're not entirely sure that time lords actually reproduce sexually to where he True. would have a mother. True. But let's let's look at it from a parental aspect. You know, if you knew that your son or your daughter was about to die, would you do mm-hmm. everything in your power to make sure that your child did the right thing, including going back and talking to someone and saying, hey, you know, I know the doctor doesn't kill, but now is the time for him to take up arms, old soldier. Uh, mm-hmm. And would you not be somebody who, in a group of people who want to kill your child, be the one who dissents against killing your child? Those are my arguments where right away I was like, oh, mother. Because who loves nah, the son more? Than I can see that. But wouldn't you have the same thing? Let's say you're Susan. Yeah. And he's he's your grandfather. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't you have that same sort of, you know, familial protectiveness about it? Mm-hmm. It's obviously something that either they're not going to tell us or we're not going to find out until later. Yeah. Because if you if you realize they they made no reference to it. 
No, they just there was just the doctor this didn't glance. seem to recognize her. I thought he did. I thought in his reaction he was like, "Ah, okay, this makes sense now. Now I've got to do this." And that kind of mm. triggered him to start with the gun. Um uh Bartoni G or Bartoni G or Barton Barton G. I can't read tonight. Just FYI, the BBC website has an official commentary track for both parts of the end of time by showrunner and episode writer Russell T. Davis, in which he offers a lot of interesting info on the story development and production. Of special interest is the discussion of the identity of the woman who keeps appearing to Wilfred uh, with premonitions of what's to come, as well as an exploration and explanation of the Master's new powers. I haven't had a chance to go and check that out on the BBC website. I think I will now that I know that it's there. Barton G. also in the comment section does not say... um, you know what the what the spoiler is there so we will have to go over to the bbc website oh speaking of this part of the uh, episode let's take a listen really quickly to this commentary track hello this is slappy and i have some comments for the doctor who special first of all i have been watching doctor who going back all the way to the first doctor with every available videotape of the past year and a half driving my wife crazy in the process I have also been watching all of the uh, present uh, day incarnations, and I watched this uh, last couple episodes, last few episodes with great anticipation, and I do have a few comments regarding that, particularly the final episode. First, this doctor, he was the first and only doctor I've ever seen in any incarnation to actually really show some deep regret in the fact that he was no longer going to be the doctor, aside from the second doctor, who was probably more pissed off about the fact that they were forcing him to regenerate, that is, the Time Lords were forcing him to regenerate, rather than the fact that he had actually died. Secondly, when you consider the fact that Romana herself voluntarily changed, it does show that the Time Lords may look upon uh, changing their lives a little capriciously, but considering the fact that the Doctor has regenerated so many times, he might start getting a little worried that his real song might come to an end very soon. Now, the next point I wish to go over are the is, one, the woman. She was never mentioned by name, the one who came and spoke to Wilfred Mott, and then they saw later on with the Time Lords, played by Timothy Dalton as the president. But what you might have noticed was that there was another woman also, Two votes had their heads down. I think these two votes, or these two women, might be one. One could be Susan. One, I'm certain, is probably, uh... Ooh, son of a bitch, I blanked on the freaking name. Romana, however many incarnations she might be in now, that still might be Romana, too, for all we know. Or, there's a third possibility, and it could be Leela. Even though she was not a Time Lord, she did marry a Time Lord. I don't know how that would exactly work or if something would go in that way. I think it's probably the first two, Susan and Romana, even though they didn't bring them up. So there's a possibility that one of those characters might come in later on. Lastly, Rassilon was called by name. Timothy Dalton was called Rassilon. So now the question is, was he cursing him as Rassilon? Or was that indeed Rassilon who sent the jewel that was given to him that we did see the first time in the five doctors in Rassilon's tomb? 
was that indeed Rassilon, or was he just cursing him as Rassilon? And if that is the case, does that mean that Rassilon truly is not the revered leader that we believe him to be? Now, I know that there are a lot of people who might be wondering who some of these characters are, and unfortunately, this is all going back to the old lore, to the original uh, series, rather than the continuation later on. But thank you very much, and may Block never show the light of day in comics again. Thank you. So, here this person is kind of thinking along the same lines as we are. Who could this be? Who did you peg it as? You peg it as Susan? I think Susan for two reasons. Mm -hmm. One, to have it be the doctor's mother would be interesting, but it'd be kind of movie of the week. Whereas if it's Susan, it's a tie back to, you know, the earliest companions, the earliest history of the show. Mm -hmm. Uh, The same would be true of Romana, I think, to a lesser degree. But uh, based on the age of the character, you know, I don't see Romana as being 60 or 70 years old, whereas Susan... 45 years ago was a teenager-ish, you know, she could, in theory, be in her 60s now if she never regenerated or never had to regenerate. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'd like it to be Susan. Okay. I know it's it's not the actress who played Because Susan, what, happened, what happened to Susan? Susan just left. I believe Susan met a boy and left the TARDIS and went away. Ah, okay. As all young girls are prone to do, which would mean that maybe the guy... Did you think that that other person was a guy? The other person near um, the other dissenter? I didn't see the reveal of that other person. I we didn't, really we never saw attention. his face, but just from the haircut, I thought it was a guy. I, w- I was caught by their, you know, their resemblance to the angels from Blink. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I didn't necessarily think about it like that. I will say this. I'm not you, entirely sure. Did you watch... Uh, did you watch Demons, the show that ran right after Doctor Who on BBC America? I watched the preview during Demons. Okay, so, yeah, I kind of fast-forwarded through to that part, too. Uh, yeah. Did you see that the Blink angels are coming back? Or at least they're the referenced in there? Coming back. And we'll talk about, you know, the, tra- the, the changeover in writers in a moment. But the Time Lords are sent back. Earth is saved. Everything's fine. Um, Donna used her Doctor Who, her Doctor... Donna Powers to save herself for a moment. Uh, yeah. Wilf is trapped in this lead line booth with this nuke stuff about to go off, and he yeah. looks very much like Scotty from uh, Star Trek uh, Two. I think that Rathicon. was intentional too. And the Doctor says, "Well, Wilf, I can't let you die because that wouldn't be who I am." And he goes in and he subjects himself to all of the radiation. But very not much without like, first being very, very upset. Yeah, because he's like, why me? Why did, after everything that's happened and everything's back, why do I have to be this person? Why can't I get my reward? Yeah. Well, and when the Master disappears and the Time Lords disappear, the Doctor looks up and he's almost jubilant. He's happy and he, you can tell he thinks he's beaten it. And then you hear Wilf behind the glass. And oh, Wolf and goes, that was so... That was so perfect, because the minute you hear those four taps, yep. the doctor instantly says, oh, crap, this is the part where I die. He will knock four times, and you suddenly realize that Wilf is knocking four times. And it's not just dun-dun-dun-dun, because he's tapping it at the same uh, doctor, uh, the, the dual heartbeat of the Time Lord tap, but he does it four times, and the doctor does that slow turn, and it's like, oh, shit, Wilf has been 
essentially the doctor's downfall since we first saw him back in the yep. uh, the Starship Titanic episode. And the doctor realizes that the reason Wilf keeps popping up is because Wilf is his death. Yeah. Which is interesting. Yeah. And, of course, he does what he has to do after he, he struts and frets and plays his moments on the stage. What really cracked me up, though, was right after the doctor was forced to absorb all the radiation, he stands up. He grabs the door and it opens. He's like, oh, now it opens. Right, right. I love but the that. fact that, you know, here's the doctor going through all this pain, excruciating pain, and oh, oh I'm going to die. And, and the audience is led to believe it. This is the point where the doctor dies and he covers up his head and face. And my wife is sitting in the other room kind of playing with our son and, and kind of watching. And she's like, is this the point where he changes? And I'm like, well, yeah, I guess. And then he gets up, brushes it off, and he's like, well, I'm dying now. Goodbye. You will see me one yep. more time. And it's just like, wait, he's just dropped a thousand plus feet onto solid marble floor. He's taken yep. a whole nuclear blast of radiation, 5,000 rads or whatever it is. He should be yep. dead already. How is it that he can brush himself off, get into the TARDIS, and then go have this wonderful montage moment uh, of going back in time before he goes through his death he scene? Read the script. Yeah, that's that's it too. Well, I don't think a thousand. I think a thousand feet is really, really, really exaggerated. At the speed he fell of from that a great ship, height. At that well, okay. He fell from a great height. Okay, but I go don't open think up your thousand... open up your dungeon master's guide and look at how much damage you take on every ten feet. I'm not of, saying of... that he shouldn't. <laughs> I'm just saying a thousand feet is well and truly overstating. Oh yeah. Well, he also okay. got zorched by the master super light. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so this episode is filled with with little fake out moments. There right, are a lot right, of. Right. Uh, is he gonna? Is he gonna? Oh no! Is is he? It no. Right. But if he just regenerated, we wouldn't have had the last twenty minutes. Which if, tell us about the montage wonder- moment, which I think are probably the most wonderful part of the entire the three episodes that we do. And he realizes. Uh, Wolf watches, and his scars fade away, and he realizes he's starting to regenerate. So he gets in the TARDIS, and we see him visit Martha Jones, right? Who is Martha, where? married to Mickey. Rose's from season one right? yeah Rose's ex and Mickey and Martha are fighting a Sontaran the doctor saves her from death yeah so this and takes then the place doctor, in the future is the only thing that I could think of I don't know I, I don't know where cool. it takes place I thought it was cool he travels through space and time Steven it can take place anywhere I matter. know he saves Sarah Jane's son from being hit by a car and then Sarah Jane is there and sees him and then he visits Captain Jack. You remember Captain yeah, Jack? Torchwood. Off at the end of Torchwood. Yeah. And uh, he hooks up Captain Jack with uh, Alonzo, the midshipman from uh, the Starship Titanic. And then one, I think the most beautiful sequence for me was the callback to human nature, where he meets uh, the granddaughter of the woman he fell in love with in 1913. Oh, yes. That was a great moment where the, the woman is... And as- is- Signing a book and saying, oh, yes, this story is true back in 1930, whatever, or the 1800s, my uh, my mother fell in love with this man. He had this I just diary. said it twice, and I you're know. not listening. I did listen. Fell in you love with this listen. man. He had a diary, and I've transcribed it. It's all true. And then he goes yep. up and the says. The Journal I- of Impossible Things. Yeah. And uh, he says, did she live happily? And the woman looks up and instantly knows that this is who it is. And says, yes. And then she asks him, did you have a happy life? And he's like, meh, yeah. The That's doc- cool. Greg A. says, the Dr. Sarah Jane scene made me misty-eyed as well. I did like the Mickey-Martha pairing. 
a Smith Jones freelance series, maybe perhaps in the future. That'd Go ahead. Cool. Let's finish it off with the final companion, which I thought was brilliantly done. The doctor done. shows up at Donna's wedding. Oh no, not the. Okay, well, there's one more companion. Yes, he shows up at the yeah. do, at Donna's wedding. At Donna's wedding, gives them a lottery ticket. He apparently borrowed a dollar from Donna's dead father and bought her a lottery ticket. Yep. Which is certainly going to pay out. And then he shows up on New Year's Day 2005. Mm-hmm. And he sees Rose Tyler and her mom coming home from a New Year's party. And this is really now cool remember, because, yeah, go ahead. She met the fifth, uh, the ninth doctor, rather, on like Christmas Eve or around Christmas 2005. Mm-hmm. So this is happening months before he ever met her. Right. Before she would have any idea who he is. And the fact that the only way that he could see Rose once more is to go back into the past before the two encountered each other because she's in another dimension. Yep. And I just thought that was great. My wife actually commented. She's like, why doesn't he do this all the time? I'm like, he just broke all the rules. Mm -hmm. He crossed over his own timeline. He went back and interfered in things he shouldn't have interfered in. He saved a friend from dying, not because that friend needed saving for any reason other than this was his friend. He breaks all the rules of time, Mm -hmm. kind of the way he did in the waters of Mars, Mm -hmm. just so that he can, you know, see all of his friends the last time. And as Rose tells him he's going to have a great year, the radiation poisoning basically takes him and he barely gets back. Fairly gets back to the TARDIS, almost doesn't make it, and Ud Sigma shows up and says that the universe is going to sing him to sleep and says, this song may end, but the story will never end. Which I think is really a sweet, you know, kind of moment from a man who looks like a demon. Right. Uh, right. With, with a squid face. And he, he gets to the TARDIS, barely sets the TARDIS off and regenerates. And blows well, he, the TARDIS. Well, up. he thinks that this is the end. He's he essentially then the powers start to come out of him, and he just looks up and says, "I don't want to die." And then his his power starts to explode out of his body, and it starts to blow the crap and out of the TARDIS. I don't know if that's because because he was trying to stop the regeneration because he held it back so long, or because of the the energy that he in you know in. Suggested, but well, he I think, blows up. Yeah, I originally the, the as we know it. I originally thought when I saw that, knowing that he was going to regenerate, I just thought that when a time lord actually dies and expires their last life, that this is this is the effect. They don't just go softly into the night. There's a lot of power yeah. pent up. And I've asked you this question before. <laughs> I could have sworn at some point in the early Doctor Who episodes they had said that the time lord can only regenerate ten times. And so, is it 12 times? I always thought it was 10 because that led me to believe that, okay, this is going to be our last doctor and he better do it right. No. And so. A a, a Time Lord has a natural regeneration span of 13 lives, 12 regenerations. Okay. All right. That was why the master was considered such an abomination because he used up his lives and started stealing lives from other people. Right, 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 right. Okay. So then all of a sudden the the TARDIS starts plummeting back to Earth and he turns into a little boy. He turns into a much younger younger version I, of himself. I do love the moment where he he hears his voice being high and he starts like, messing with wait, his wait, hair. He realizes I've got his long hair is like, oh long, God, I'm, I'm a girl. girl. <laughs> and then he's like, no, wait, I'm not a girl. And he's feeling an Adam's apple. And he's like, no, I'm still a man. And then 
what's the next thing? He, he pulls his hair down. And he, he says, "Oh, I don't have ginger hair anymore. At least I don't have ginger I'm hair." Not, still not ginger. Yeah. He touches his nose and he's <laughs> like, "Ooh, well, I've had worse." Yeah, and then he realizes he's falling to earth. Yep, and we get his new catchphrase, which is Geronimo. <laughs> It's it's a new catchphrase. I Each thought, doctor has kind of a catchphrase. I like the last um I like the last bit of this was my of the three again, my second favorite of the three episodes, yeah. mainly for the last act in the in the episode. The whole goodbye, yeah. this is my swan song, look at me sacrificing, look at me defeating the bad guy. And oh look, I'm really not dead. Well, he is though. Well, he is because the, the whole the point doctors of don't these remember. two episodes was that you know regeneration has always been treated kind of like a lark, right? The first regeneration was a very serious affair. They thought he was dead, mm-hmm. and that we had no idea what regeneration was in 1966. So when he first regenerated into his second form, it was you know weird, and after that, regeneration kind of lost its luster. Even you know the sixth doctor who had such an unstable regeneration that he tried to strangle Perry, mm-hmm. it wasn't really a huge difficult... It wasn't... I don't know. I, I think the, the attempt here was to make sure that even though the regeneration's going to occur and he's going to continue, it's still like dying. And it's still, you know, the end of this character, the end of a part of his life. To where, you know, there are consequences for the doctor. He can't just, you know, blithely do whatever he wants and then regenerate. Mm-hmm. Because he'll always regenerate. He's not Wolverine. Mm-hmm. I like that bit. I also, you know, I felt like, you know, having the character be afraid of it. Having the character be unsure. Having the character be so so unusually overwhelmed with this thought it really does bring home, you know, kind of a, a new humanity for the character. For me. Right, right. <coughs> Excuse me. And, you know, there is a sadness when your doctor regenerates. Oh, yeah. When the because fifth doctor the fan, regenerated sure. to the sixth, I stopped watching and never forgave them. Mm-hmm. I came back eventually. Right. When the ninth doctor regenerated to the tenth, my friend Sarah got very upset and didn't want to accept David Tennant. Because the ninth doctor was her doctor. Mm-hmm. Just like Tom and, Baker and, and Jim Pertree yeah. are my doctors. Screw. John Pertwee. <laughs> John Pertwee. Do not say putree to me. Blah, you blah, horrific. blah, 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 blah. Let's talk about Russell T. Davis. Now, Dan Slott, Dan Slott la, la, went la, la. on a tirade over on Twitter after watching the uh, first part of The End of Time, hated, hated, hated everything about Russell T. Davis. And there have been a lot of people that have been fairly critical of Davis's writing of of the series. Uh, plot points, loopholes, things that don't make sense, uh, you know, just silly and sometimes bad storytelling and dialogue. What do you think? I think... Russell Davis does have one flaw mm-hmm. that you can look at. His stories are designed. Some people will design a story that's like an episode of Mousetrap, 
You ever play Mousetrap when you were a kid? Yeah, once or twice, but I could never this get the cage to this fall. And right. it, like a Rube Goldberg device. This yeah. causes this to happen, and this causes this to happen. Right. Uh, a Russell Davis script is more about forward motion and emotional moments and you know moments that you remember to the point where some of the things that you pointed out, I don't even remember about part one. It just... Did you, and watch, especially, did you watch parts one and two back to back, or did you watch them... No, I watched part one on the 26th and okay. part two on the second. Okay. I watched them as they aired. Waters of Mars, I didn't watch until like three days before end of time. Okay. For a lot of reasons. Um, but uh, Russell Davis is one of those people. It's not to him about the plot. It's about the character moments. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there are times when if you if you go through and say, what exactly is going on here? How do I break this down? How does this plot work? Maybe it's not it's not gonna be picture perfect. You know, it's not like a, a little machine where everything has its part. It's more of a uh, they get by on personality, I mm-hmm. guess is a good way to put mm-hmm. it. You know, technically they are flawed, but it's such it's such an experience and it's so propelling. It's so very vibrant and so dynamic that sometimes you can just kinda go yeah, I can look over here, look over here. Don't pay attention to that yeah. man behind the curtain. I I, I I don't like the the way that the tenth doctor was kind of passive mm-hmm. throughout um episode two. I know why they did what they did, and I know that they set it up, you know, they set it up for, you know, three whole specials to set it up to where he is he becomes resigned to his fate. Right. It was still a little unnerving for me. Mm-hmm. Well, I will say this. I have enjoyed many of of um, the the writings. I've enjoyed many of the scripts. I've enjoyed many of the stories. But I will say this. Since Blink is one of my modern favorite episodes, I cannot mm-hmm. wait until Stephen Moffat takes over the writing duties and see the first episode that he cranks out. I cannot wait for the ultra super hot new companion, Amy. <laughs> this woman is hotter than yeah, Donut she Grease. Is. My she is. She is. She's very attractive. I mean, and she, she starts out in a uh, schoolgirl uniform or something like that. <sighs> <laughs> oh, Matthew, Matthew, Matthew. So, how do we rate the final three episodes? We're kind of running long on time here. How do we rate the final right. three episodes? I say. Waters of Mars, End of Time Part 2, End of Time Part 1. That's how I would rank them. All three, very good. I would recommend that if you are even remotely interested in Doctor Who, uh, that you check these episodes out so that you're kind of up to speed on what's going to happen with Doctor 11. I would say End of Time Part 2, End of Time Part 1, Waters of Mars. Okay. Simply because they're all interesting and they're all well done, but... Part two had the moments that I appreciated the most. Mm-hmm. Part two had a moment where they actually managed to do a little bit of redemption for the master. Right. 35 years of the master going, wah, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> and they actually managed to insert that little time twist that made you feel bad. Right. That made you realize that he didn't have to be the psycho that he's always been. He was made this psycho because Rassilon thought it was a good idea to get himself out of a bind. Yeah. You know, even if he is a schmuck, even if he did kill Tremas, even if he did all these things and drive a motorcycle and, and 
carry Jackie Chan. I don't know. All the stuff that he did. Steal the TARDIS and look into the Eye of Harmony. Whatever. Mm-hmm. You still kind of go, I felt for him. I really did. And when he started, you know, having his his big Zorch battle with Razalon, I was, you know, I was rooting for the master. Oh, yeah. I think That's everybody was. Yeah. 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 I, I think so everybody I was at the point. Okay. I, You know, again, in that preview, not only do we see the Blink Angels return, mm-hmm. uh, but the Daleks look like they're going to be back. Of course, how can you not There's have a, a Doctor Who Dalek. without Daleks? I don't remember if I saw any Cybermen in that uh, in that trailer. Uh, there, I didn't see any Cybermen. Um, but I am. I really am looking forward to what happens next with Doctor Who. We will find the out Daleks, in the spring. Yeah, the Daleks have to appear. Yeah, we'll find the out more in the spring. The Daleks are the only villain to face all the incarnations of the Doctor. Oh yeah, yeah. With the exception of the Eighth, of course. Um. I am also, if I remember everything correctly, we don't have to wait six months after it airs in, in BBC. We're getting I them the not. same weekend. We're getting them the same week yeah. that they air on BBC. I would also suggest this to people. If your cable provider does not have BBC HD, bug your cable BBC provider one. to get BBC, BBC HD. All right? Because uh, I think these shows... I think everything wider. plays better in HD. Let me just say that. Yeah, I don't have an HD television. Get yourself an HD television, Matthew. My television still has a coaxial cable jack in the back. Excellent. That's how old my television is. <laughs> okay, everybody, that is our discussion for this weekend of Doctor Who and Sherlock Holmes. Rodrigo will be back with us on Tuesday, and we will be talking about kind of a little bit of time travel kind of goodness, right, Matthew? Isn't, isn't it got some time travel involved and some science involved? <laughs> We'll be taking a look at the five fists of science. Should be a lot of fun. All Please I'm join us. Is Mark Twain, giant robots. Be there. <laughs> be join us because we know that you love comics and we do too. And we will talk with you then. Now right. reverse the polarity of the neutron flow. If you have any questions, comments, topic ideas for future shows, or would like to sponsor a show, send an email to podcast at majorspoilers.com. Visit major spoilers at majorspoilers.com and be sure to check out the major spoilers forum. You can also follow Major Spoilers on Twitter at twitter.com slash majorspoilers and on MySpace at myspace.com slash majorspoilers. Fat Dick's revision of Superman. I could save a few bucks and stand around and read through the covers of the comics on the stand. But although every other page would be backwards, I suppose, I could still read the evens and the odds. Well, I don't know. Guess I haven't thought this all the way through. Plus, as soon as the comic book store guy knew, they kicked my butt out on the corner. What a major spoiler. What a major spoiler. Way. If I was hulking green or gray, I could just bust through that brick wall, take their comic books away. But then the little meat would deal with all the tanks and bombs and guns. Have you ever tried to read a series with all that going on? Guess I mean to rethink this plan. How would I back and board my comics with such huge hands? Guess I already told ya. What a major spoiler. What a major spoiler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What a major spoiler What a major spoiler 
I'm stark raving rich like a man of iron Might not be surprised to find That I might actually have the heart cold To follow an entire storyline But would I really even need To read upon all those escapades I mean who needs such distractions When your sister's such a babe But the downside is such a beast Being shot up in a fine be in the Middle East With a king sign throwing soldier What a major spoiler What a major spoiler Yeah, yeah, yeah what a major spoiler, whoa, 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 what a major spoiler. Major Spoilers Podcast, copyright 2009. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.